Hello and welcome to the Nightcap. I'm glad you guys are here for the newest episode. We're going to be talking to Jake. He's going to be back for the second time and kind of go over the NFL draft, one of the more exciting periods or uh, weekends for football. Um, and we're just going to go over everything. We're going to talk about a couple of things, the craziness that happened with the Cleveland Browns. I feel like they absolutely murdered that draft in a bad way. Um, talk about how our teams did the Colts trying to become something that looks like a football franchise and Jake's Atlanta Falcons who uh, made some surprising picks and uh, we'll go over that anyway moving on also check out the five things you need to know the first four at the beginning as usual but the fifth one we're going to save it till the end kind of give you a little info about internet addiction and some of the things that have been coming out this week about it that I myself have found interesting and kind of dwelled in myself so guys uh come along for the episode uh give us your feedback as always and make sure you check out the pour up um this week we actually next week we have sam coming on this week we had a great guest it is kaz i had a great interesting discussion with him um and what he does as far as being a, a marketing person and in the marketing world and um him and steve have a crazy energy together so i think you guys would find that entertaining uh anyway going to the nightcap as always like listen follow the vision Mike, hit the music. nightcap this is your host john michael here for another segment of five things you need to know starting off beto o'rourke he is a candidate running for senator in the great state of texas and he is running as a democrat and what most people would probably think is that he has no chance to win that and actually he has a really good chance he's running against ted cruz who after the presidential election most people know is probably one of the most hated people in politics he is also one of many Democrats running in what is a changing landscape in the country, which is young voters coming out in droves trying to vote and people really unhappy about the tax split bill. So why is Beto O'Rourke interesting and why are we talking about him? He is interesting because I feel like he is a barometer and how he does in Texas is a barometer of what we can look at at the country as a whole. The country as a whole is changing. It is getting younger. It is getting more ethnically diverse. And it really cares about voting. I think after the Trump election, a lot of people realized and were kind of scared straight and have really been pushing. Also, he is a candidate that is refusing money from PACs, high don- big donors, big corporations, uh, lobbying groups that want candidates to vote along their lines so they'll throw money in their pockets. Uh, he is being very open about being publicly sourced and with, with finances, and he's raised a hell of a lot of money. And... He's going against, like I said, he's going in the landscape that is dealing with the tax bill. And as Americans slowly become affected by this bill, they're becoming less and less happy. And he's also really been out and open against Trump, specifically about Trump sending Marines to the border. He was alive whenever um, 
I believe Clinton did it, and he talked about the Marines that lost their lives on the borders, and he talks about how really they were they were never meant to be there, and he talks about the adverse effects of that, and how that that isn't necessarily the solution to the problem, and that the problem isn't necessarily as bad as Trump has it, and as most things, when you're dealing with Trump, it isn't based on facts, but most of the time, based on bigotry and racism. So, Beto O'Rourke, keep your eyes up. And check him out. Look him up. I think he's a really interesting candidate. He might be one of the most interesting Democratic candidates that has come out since Barack Obama um, and Bernie. So check him out. Next thing, Anthony Davis. Fresh off the sweep of the... I'm looking at Mike for a curious thing because I don't know. But Anthony Davis just got done sweeping the Portland Trailblazers. There we go. At the same time. Just got done sweeping the Portland Trailblazers. And what you will notice is that he is not necessarily the leader on the stat line for the team in every game. He is accepting the role of center. And it is the first time he has done that in his career. And it's the first time he's done it this season because most of the season he has had to play with Booby Cousins. He has not had to do that. It has allowed that team to play faster. It has allowed them also with the trade. It's given him more rangy players that are more the tweeners, the spot-up shooters, allowing him a little bit more freedom in the paint. And also, he's developed as a dominant two-way player. His defense on his defense and his offense, playing on both sides of the court, really doing well because he has developed that outside shot because he had switched to a four. He is what everyone... The, I think he's maximizing potential that anyone ever thought he could be, and I'm in my opinion, over the last three months, he's probably one of the best two players in the NBA. And, I mean, you can debate me on that. You can say it's the best three, but he's definitely in the top five. I think that this guy coming into this season, what he does here, shapes up his NBA MVP case for next season. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with with uh, Cousins, if they're able to keep him, if they're able to learn to develop with him. But if they can keep that talent together with Drew Holiday, Miritich, Cousins, and Anthony Davis – I think you're looking at a team that no one expected it, especially with the production they're getting out of Rondo, because Rondo is one of the biggest Boomer Bucks players ever. And I think Rondo loves playing with this guy. I think that he enjoys playing with someone who is great. Rondo is always, when he's being challenged and he is seeing the the chance to be productive, he is someone that I, I would compare Rondo to a kid that is in regular classes and should be in advanced classes. If he is bored, he is unproductive. And I think playing with Anthony Davis is making everyone on that team a lot better. Next, the French president, Macron, came to the United States, and what Fox News and some media outlets were calling a love fest, I think it was an okey-doke. Um, I think Macron and many uh, of the world's politicians are learning the quickest way to get America to not only participate in the things that you care about, but to also be reasonable, is to butter up Trump. It's to kiss his ass, and it's to publicly make him feel good, and then push your platform or push what you're going for. Luckily for us, Macron had a few things that he really cared about. He really cared about climate change. He cared about America's view internationally, their reputation, their um, them not being isolationist, and he cared about the Iran nuclear deal. Now, can he trick Trump? I'm not sure. I think that him and Merkel and several politicians around the world have been kind of instituting this because they actively joke about it. And it's talked about a lot in the press, how they joke around about being able to get Trump to do whatever you want to by tickling his ego. And I'm not sure if it'll happen. I'm not sure. But unfortunately for us, we kind of have to root for it 
because the things that he cares about are things that for progressives we also care about and will it have impact I'm not sure about that either. True, like time will tell. He got up in front of all of the politicians in Congress and the Senate and the cabinet and gave a speech today. And he talked out, talked about climate change. He talked about the need for America. He thanked America for their role in the war, World War II and World War One and them sending troops to Europe. He also talked about the fear that the, the world has in what's happening in America today. He talked about that isolationism might feel good right now. But it does not douse the flames. It actually enrages them when it comes to fear and desperation in other countries and in your own. I think that he said a lot of things that not only you know Trump needed to hear, but I think America's, Americans as a whole need to hear because we're not alone. We do not you know, dominate the world. We are not able to just lock ourselves off. We are connected. And we are connected, as you can see with the stuff we're talking about with the border. We're connected to other countries. We are a globalized economy. And yes, there are pros and cons of a globalized economy. And yes, there are some disadvantages when it comes to um, economics and classism. But those are things would, if we work together, we can heal and we can fix. The bigger problem is rejecting globalism and trying to become isolationist because we will watch our friends and allies have to deal with the brunt of what the world, what's happening in the world. And these are trying times. We're dealing in a, with a world where nationalism and fear are gripping people and making them do things that are not beneficial to uh, to the, the world as a whole. And I really don't want to emphasize much more because I know we got to move on to the next point. But really the biggest thing that he talked about and I was most impressed with what he was talking about with climate change, about the real and tangible effects that we're starting to see in the world when it comes to our impact on the world. And while people might have their own things, li listen, I understand where some people are coming from when it comes to the religious argument and the, the people of faith and saying the science isn't there and that God determines what happens in this world. I'm a person of faith myself. I am a full and ardent believer in global warming, global climate change at the same time. I think that God has blessed us with a beautiful planet. And I think that if you read the Bible the way I read the Bible, that he gave, he gave the keys to us as stewards of this planet to take care of it, to watch over it. We have the ability to make animals extinct. We have the ability to drastically affect the ecosystems of this planet. It is not beyond the belief of a, of a rational person to think that we can adversely affect the world in ways that we might not be able to fix. And I think that you can make your argument for end times and everything else. But I don't know about you, but when you buy a house, you want to make it as pristine and keep it as well as you can because it's your house. And this is our house. We only got one. We can't trade it in. We need to take care of it as best we can. And the fourth thing, I moved from something that is really, uh, really important to something that is really sad, the Miami Heat. We've just gotten beaten 4-1. to one, And as if, you, if you know me, if you have ever actually been in my house, I have a lot of Miami memorabilia all over it. It is not Miami Heat memorabilia, but my heart is still there in the city of Miami. And this is going to be a really interesting season. We might have to say goodbye to Dwayne Wade. We might have to say goodbye to Whiteside. We might have to say goodbye to other players and decide what we want to be as a team. I think we should feel very secure in the fact that we have Eric Spolstra, but I think we should really consider our max player that is occupying the five position. I think Hassan Whiteside, if he was born 10 years ago, would probably be a dominant big man in the NBA, and I think that he could have been, I don't know, maybe a Hall of Famer if he played in the 80s or 90s. But right now, he's too slow. Side to side, straightforward. 
He doesn't have second jump ability that I think that he had in his first couple seasons. And also, he's not developing a jump shot. I think if he spent the next two years and just dedicated it to that, maybe he could be a, a poor man's Anthony Davis. But right now, he's just a poor man's DeAndre Jordan. And on to the fifth thing. Actually, we're going to save that one till the end. We're going to run that after the interview with Jake. Yes, Jake is back on for the second time. We're going to discuss the first round of the NFL draft, the ins, the outs, things that we thought were really stupid, things that we thought uh, were kind of savvy, and how our teams did individually. But uh, the fifth thing is going to deal with internet addiction, a little bit about a little information that I've read that I'm learning and uh, ways to apply that. And I thought you guys would be interested in that, and it would be a little bit longer, so we'll save it till the end. And uh, let's get it to Jake. Thank you guys for listening. Hello and welcome to the Nightcap Podcast. I am your host, JM, and here is Jake to discuss the draft. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. I'm glad you were able to hop on uh, last minute. Um, gotten through the first, We're going to go through the first two rounds of the draft. I have to say, I'm... Still kind of in shock at how it went down. We, can, I mean, let's start off the biggest surprise of the day. Baker Mayfield going number one overall to the uh, Cleveland Browns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I don't think it's that large of a, supr- a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, Baker Mayfield, well, cause, in my Because people were talking about it, right? People were talking about it beforehand, right? Like, it had come out, like Adam Schefter, and people had started discussing this um, beginning of the week, right? Saying yeah, they had might... said that the Browns were leaning in that direction. Um, but you never know with the Browns. I mean, they could have picked anyone with the first pick. It, their track record's not fantastic. So, but I think Baker Mayfield was the best pick, number one. Uh-huh. I think he was the best quarterback on the board. I, I don't know, as hmm. far as the quarterbacks go, like I said in the, the previous podcast, I think that they're kind of all in the same area. They're not. None of them are really all that much standing out from each other. Okay. So... If, if I had the first pick and I was the Cleveland Browns, I probably would have gone Saquon Barkley one. Yeah, I know we Just discussed that before. I, I, I was the most surprised because I didn't think that they would go. Um, I, I thought that when whenever that story was floated out about Baker Mayfield, it happened so earlier in the week, uh, so much earlier in the week and so early for the draft process. I was like, oh, this is just one of those stories someone floats out because they heard that um, someone with the sixth or seventh pick was interested in Baker Mayfield, so you float out the story saying you're interested. It makes them want to throw in more money to trade up, and then you get out of the hole. I didn't think that Cleveland Browns wanted the first pick overall. I think they wanted the fourth to see. In my mindset, that's what I thought they were doing. Whenever they actually drafted him, I was just like, I kind of thought we had gone through a a, a reality shift, and it wasn't the real world anymore because they could have gotten Baker Mayfield with the 12th pick. (laughs) They didn't have to get him. With the, they could have got him with the fourth, and they could have taken Barkley or Chubb or anybody they wanted. Well, first I, overall pick. I, the, way I, the way I saw it, they had to pick Mayfield number one because clearly the Jets at number three moved up that high to try to get Mayfield. Oh, no, they weren't going after. No, there's no way. They were not going after. Baker Mayfield would have not gone in the first five picks if not for the Cleveland Browns taking him. No, because if the Cleveland Browns took Sam Darnold, number one overall, Baker Mayfield would have been the next one to come off the board. My thing is I would have just taken the best player. In, if I have the number one pick, I am taking the best player in the draft. and the best, like the, Not just the best player, the best value, and that is Saquon Barkley or it is Chubb. Or you could make an argument for the offensive guard from Notre Dame. All three of those things 
Cleveland needs. It, you know, someone on the other side um, from their first round draft pick last year and in a dynamic offensive player and coming out of the backfield. And then they need a quarterback. They need offensive line help. So I was really surprised. I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you're, you were expecting it as much as you were. I know you were a big fan of Baker Mayfield, but number one overall, I don't think people saw him in the top 15 three months ago. When you, when you compare the four of the quarterbacks together, I mean, Baker Mayfield, if there was one that's at the top of the, the pack, it's probably Baker Mayfield. You look at his stats, they're better than all three of the, all, all the other quarterbacks. So I didn't see it as a stretch for him to go the first quarterback off the board. I wasn't sure that the Browns would go quarterback first, but I, I felt he would be the first one off the board. Okay, so moving from the Browns at number one, we go to the, uh, the New York Giants at number two. They take Saquon Barkley. I'm really surprised. I thought with Cleveland uh, picking Mayfield, I thought that they would have went Darnold. Or uh, Josh Allen, I thought they would have went quarterback, you know, being that Eli's 37 years old and he sucked since he was 32. Um, I thought it was a time to make quarterback. They went with the they went with Saquon, Saquon Barkley. What do you think about that, Jake? I think that was a perfect pick for the Giants. And, and honestly, as soon as I saw Baker Mayfield come off the board, I knew that Saquon Barkley would be next. Because if there's one position that the New York Giants haven't been good at since Tiki Barber, it's running back. Mm-hmm. So... It's been a long time since they've had a good running back back there, and I think it really helps Eli out. I, I don't know this; it's going to mean great success for them long term. Um, but they can pick a quarterback when they start getting bad because Eli retires. Yeah. So this is my thing. I think sometimes when we're when we're watching the draft, we assume that the owners of the teams and the GMs and the coaches are like. Mel Kuyper and the analysts and looking at projects and looking at all this. And we forget that some of them are kind of like us and they're, they're sensitive to what's going on in the media and they're sensitive to what their fan base wants. And it was clear that New York liked the idea of taking Saquon Barkley. And I think that they realized that they liked it. They liked the star power. They liked the personality, put him on the field with Odell. There's a lot that can happen, but they don't really have anything that helps Saquon Barkley right now. They don't have a quarterback to take the pressure on off of him. They don't have an offensive line to block for him. It's kind of, I understand, like, taking him because, yeah, he's a freak of nature and he's going to be great. Will he be great for 10 years? I don't think running backs do that anymore. But I I don't know. I was a little surprised. I just think that they're going to put him back there and he's just going to look, it's going to be like a triage. People are just hitting him every five seconds. I feel like them taking Saquon Barkley, they're coming from the mindset of we want to win right now. So Saquon Barkley of all they got the of number the two pick. How are they going to win right now? They got the number one, the number two pick. They they're not good. <laughs> I think that if that's the case, then they got a much higher view of themselves than their record would indicate. You're right there. I mean, you're right with them having the second pick. They obviously had a terrible year last year, um, but Odell Beckham was injured most of the year last year. True, true. Odell was injured, but how crazy, like, that's such a negotiating point for Odell if, that, if that's the reason that, like, their whole season went down was because Odell got hurt. But, um, well, so who moving. Was, who was the next, the next option for a uh, wide receiver after Odell? Well, the, the I, they one? have Shepard from LSU, too. Um, I think that, no, that's not his name, but they drafted another receiver from LSU. He's pretty good. They also had, um, the dude who used to do the salsa all the time in the end zone. Victor Cruz. Thank you, Mike. 
Yeah, no, he wasn't even on the team. He got cut early in the year. Oh, he did? Oh, man. Yeah, because he can't stay healthy. They had no one at wide receiver. Oh, Brandon Marshall, free agent pickup. Former pro bowler. Former Former. person who could get space from a cornerback. Former. He didn't have a stellar year. No, he had a terrible year. Terrible year. His age caught up. Terrible year. So moving on to pick three, Sam Darnold. So I'm going to read off a few of them because I feel like once this pick happened, uh, oh, actually, no. Number four is one of the stupidest picks of the draft. I I feel personally that the Cleveland Browns did a very Cleveland Browns draft. But anyway, Sam Darnold goes number three. Denzel Ward goes number four. And then probably the steal of the draft, the Denver Broncos getting Bradley Chubb. Correct. Yeah, Sam Darnold, obvious yeah. for for the Jets. They clearly moved up and gave gave up the entire bank to yeah, get four to number Q- three. Yeah. So they were going quarterback. Yeah, they Sam definitely. Sam Darnold is the most is the safest quarterback. Yeah, definitely the safest. Um, some you know some people would say the interceptions, small you know sample size, but he checks off a lot of the boxes for the people that evaluate it. And I, I, I knew it was the same. I don't think they could have ran up there fast enough to throw in the ticket for that. But number four, Denzel Ward. So this is another example of they could have just traded down and gotten this guy at probably number 10 or 12. I, he wasn't even on most people's boards, the number one cornerback, and he got picked with the number four pick. I thought it was – I understand. Like, they always say, like, hey, if you love this guy, you pick him no matter what the pick is. But, like, every once in a while you're like, man – I don't know if you're watching the same tape as me. He doesn't make a lot of interceptions. Doesn't he's not a, a presence around the ball. No, it, it was a very confusing pick. That one really came out of left field. I definitely expected Chubb, Bradley Chubb, to be there. Uh, maybe Roquan Smith, but not Denzel Ward. And in my opinion, uh, being that he's from University, you know, Ohio State University, I think that it's probably a homer pick. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people local there probably are also Ohio State fans. So Yeah, yeah. And then uh, so moving after that is Bradley Chubb, which is a very Denver Broncos-like pick. The number one defensive end pass rusher is available. Take him. I think that you, their view is you can never go wrong if the other person's quarterback isn't standing. If I continue to sack him and continue to get pressure on him, I'm doing good. And I don't know, man. I think it's a dangerous. I think the AFC West as a whole got a lot better this uh, this draft especially on defense for san diego and uh, denver and denver hits it off here with bradley chubb yeah definitely a steal you know the broncos can thank the browns and the jets for needing a quarterback this draft otherwise bradley chubb should have been within the top three yeah yeah absolutely i think there are a lot of people that are saying like in other years bradley chubb would have probably been the number one or number two pick um, moving from there, we have the Colts, which, thank God, I didn't want them to do something stupid. I didn't want them to try to pick a sexy pick. They draft an offensive guard. I, it's probably the happiest I've ever been that the Colts drafted an offensive guard in my life. And then you have Josh Allen going to uh, Buffalo and Roquan Smith, which people also were having some uh, thoughts about, like, hey, in another draft, this guy might have went at number one overall with the talent that he had. Yeah, yeah, Roquan Smith definitely dropped because of all the quarterback need up top. Quentin Nelson for the Colts, the perfect choice. I mean, they need someone to keep Andrew Luck healthy, yep. period. And and you, you invested into that guy, and now you're just letting him getting, getting sacked a million times a year. 
Yeah, and also the first, the first uh, two of the first three picks for uh, the Colts were offensive guards, and they were both run offensive guards. So I think that they finally realized that hey, maybe if we don't have them just standing back there seven yards behind the line of scrimmage fifty times a game, you know, maybe we can avoid getting them hit all the time. So hopefully we'll do a little bit of the running the ball. Josh Allen goes to the Bills, and you've heard my opinion on Josh Allen. I, I don't think he's I don't think he's very good. To me, he looks like the guy that you draft that you think he might look really good in like preseason and he starts playing and it's just absolute chaos. I just think that Josh Allen's not very good. Um, but what do you think about him going to Buffalo? Worst pick of the draft. Worst. Yeah. Uh, they, they traded, traded up for him too. There. Yeah, to get him. Um, Josh Allen is – I don't understand the infatuation with him, to be honest. Dude, for 1,700 yards from, one year. 1,700. His last year. Mm-hmm. His last year, he threw for uh, 1,658 yards. His completion percentage was 56%. 13 touchdowns, 6 interceptions. Yeah. So, it really is... I don't, I don't understand the infatuation. I mean, yeah, could he have the physical attributes? Sure. But when you don't connect those with your actual performance, what does it matter? You know who this reminds me of is uh, Jamarcus Russell. Jamarcus Russell was one of those guys who never, like, listen, I don't know anyone that watched Jamarcus Russell in college and thought, this guy's a stud. But you know what he could do? He could get down on one knee and throw the ball 75 yards. And I remember that that was what they always were enamored with when they were covering him on ESPN. And I was looking at the quarterback camp, and they showed uh, Josh Allen throwing the ball out of the stadium. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. There it is. That's the first one. And then he shows up a little chunky to the draft. He kind of looks a little... Like maybe needs to get in shape, maybe like you know needs to work on. I'm like no, 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 no. This is this is how it happens. This is how it happens. And then this guy from Wyoming gets picked number seven overall. You traded up for him. And also, is there a better town for a bus to go to than Buffalo? I mean, their fan base is just gonna. There's more no more entertaining fan base for me to watch lose than the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, it, it's his stats are just. I don't know. I don't know why. It just has to be the physical attributes because his stats aren't fantastic, and he's not in a great division. You know, it, the Wyoming doesn't play in a Power Five. They don't play against top defensive talent. I, I was looking up like their most difficult game was probably against the Boise State Broncos, and he threw for 31 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. Yeah, he and got hurt in that game, right? For 27. Did he get hurt in that game or no? I, I don't know. But, I mean, that was probably the most difficult defense he had played, and he did not perform well. Yeah, and I think so, a, lot of the, like a lot of the praise was for him, if I'm not mistaken, but what he did in the Senior Bowl and with, with that whole thing with, like, the East versus West, and then his stock came up because I think a lot of people were saying what you were, that his stats suck this year. Like, why, why, why are we thinking this guy's a first-round draft pick? He doesn't look like he can throw the ball to the right team. Yeah, and then when they were talking about the Browns possibly taking him number one, and then I tell you that there's another guy out there who has a 71% completion rate. He threw for over 4,000 yards, had 41 touchdowns and five interceptions. Which guy are you choosing? Lamar Jackson. That was Baker Mayfield. I, I know. So, I <laughs> clearly, Dude, I mean, so when it was I don't like – I, like, well, Listen, if you tell me a guy that's six foot tall – and has small hands is going to do well in Cleveland in December. 
then a you know what i like like more power to you if he can do it he can do it but all i'm telling you is that doesn't look like a winning recipe to me is putting someone in an outdoor stadium in a really cold environment with small hands and like in small hands and he's got to already do the drew Brees tiptoe to see over the offensive line i think before he even thinks about throwing the ball he has barriers that i wouldn't necessarily want to play around with that's my opinion on baker mayfield I'll, I'll get off of it. I'll get off of it. Let's move on. Um, next th- uh, three or four picks, we have uh, Mike McGlinchey, another second offensive lineman for Notre Dame, taken Josh Rosen, uh, drafted. And we'll, we'll get into Josh Rosen and, and kind of his hmm. post-draft uh, interview. Mika Fitzpatrick, Alabama boy, going to the Miami Dolphins. Um, I think Don, a friend of ours, is pretty happy about that one. And then the draft pick of Mike's concern, Vit Via from Washington goes to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So this, these are some actually pretty exciting picks that happened right here. Cause I feel like these are, uh, these are big for the franchises that they're getting drafted by. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably what the top of the draft should have looked like minus the quarterbacks that were taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Mika Fitzpatrick is going to be a good fit in Miami. Mike McClinchy, is is the best tackle on the board. So, you know, what does San Francisco need? They need offensive linemen. That's you how you get better. Jimmy G, $115 million man. Yeah. And Vita Vea, I mean, he was the best player available for the Buccaneers at the time. They got to trade back and still picked up a decent player. So, uh, win for them. Yeah, and so uh, San Francisco had to get an offensive lineman, had to build around him. Josh Rosen... Josh Rosen. So there's a guy that, like, there's two kinds of guys they always talk about in the draft. The guy that has the chip on his shoulder and the guy that is, you know, like, left in the green room for too long or fell and now he, people doubted him and then he put, you know, and he somehow summons up the power to, you know, succeed and, you know, muscle, like, muscle all this. And then there's the guy that's taken really early and it ruins his, you know, who he is as a, a football player. I really think Josh Rosen wanted us to believe he was that first guy. Like, I think when he was doing the press conference, he was like, I saw how Aaron Rodgers acted. This is how I'm coming for people. Like, I'm going to act like I'm the toughest dude in the world. If he doesn't, if he doesn't win a Super Bowl in the first five years, that I'm, I'm, I'm so far out on that speech after he, that he did that. Yeah, I, full disclosure, I'm not a fan of Josh Rosen at all is it because he has a punchable um, face because he does have one of those like he his face looks primed for a good slapping it does and uh, also the things that he says doesn't help that either it's like oh punchable face plus punchable words yeah that's it and I, I think that he went too soon in my opinion i mean i still think that i when i had him ranked fourth of the five quarterbacks that i thought should have gone in the first round um, only the only one that was worse than him, in my opinion, is uh, Josh Allen. But I think that <clears throat> he he just doesn't have the right attitude, in my opinion, yep. to be successful in the NFL. No, I see, I see it, and I see, I think a lot of people compare him to Aaron Rodgers and compare him to some of the cockier quarterbacks that are out there. I'm not against cockiness. I like people that know they're good and they carry themselves and they also carry the responsibility of being good, i.e. Russell Westbrook. He knows how good he is. He knows who he has to be for that team. 
Uh, I like the personality part of that. But I do not think Josh Rosen is that dude. I just don't. I don't think that. I think it's like a false bravado for him and something he has to tell himself. Because I didn't see that at Cal when he was playing. I mean, UCLA, sorry. I didn't see that at UCLA. Uh, so, I mean, I hope I hope he does well, man. I root, I, I root him on, man, because I don't want to see... I don't want to see the Cardinals be bad. I, I think the Cardinals are a good team, and Larry deserves a good quarterback because he never consistently had one. So, I don't know. I, I, I was interested in that. But Minka Fitzpatrick for the Dolphins. No, we talked about like what had been happening in free agency in the NFL season earlier. Um, we talked about Miami letting go of a lot of talent. They were just getting rid of people left and right that were personalities the coach didn't like. If there's one player that shows like that was why he did it, it's Minka Fitzpatrick because he's known as... Nick Saban's son, the guy who, you know, is in the in the coach's, you know, back pocket and always trying to run the defense. So I think this was a very it, – it lined up with what they did over the offseason. Yeah, he's a smart player. So, I mean, he's going to learn the playbook. He's going to sit back in the safety position. He's going to be able to help out everyone that's in front of him, make sure they're in the right positions, make sure they're he's – he's a field general quarterback playing safety. Yeah, and so, that's exactly what they need. Yeah. Something the Bucks need too, but uh, we won't talk about that. We won't talk about that. To the pick, I actually think that it's good for the Bucks to get another defensive lineman. I think that they need it. I think that you like Gerald McCoy is not going to be there forever. One, and as the Eagles are teaching us, you can never have too many offensive linemen or defensive linemen. Like if you can rotate them, if you can keep them fresh, it's one. Of the, it's the most important set of positions other than quarterback. Yeah, I mean, if Vita Vea turns out to be really good, I mean, then you got McCoy Vea. You know, that's tough. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And they picked up uh, the guy from the Eagles uh, in the off season too. They picked up a, a edge rusher, uh, huh? Yep. And so, oh, yeah, yeah. moving on, um, Deron Payne from Alabama. Um, Major talent there. Uh, Marcus Davenport, defensive end for the Saints. Colton Miller, offensive tackle for the Raiders. And Tremaine Edmonds, outside linebacker, again to the Buffalo Bills. They traded up for him. Um, Deron Payne's probably the one that stands out the most to me here, other than uh, Gruden taking an offensive tackle, which I don't think is a bad idea because, he, like I said, protect, protect your quarterback if you've got one. Um, but Durant Payne is a troublemaker, and he is a diverse uh, defensive lineman. And I, I wouldn't want to play against him in the NFC or in the AFC, yeah, NFC East for two games a year. Yeah. So for me, um, when I look at Alabama and players that are drafted from Alabama, there's two positions that give me a little bit of pause, and that's when a running back gets drafted from Alabama and mm, when a defensive time. lineman gets drafted from Alabama. Really? Because for Nick Saban, he just seems to, like, I know we just talked about Mika Fitzpatrick. He played safety. He didn't take the wear and tear. Like he also left his junior year. Lineman does. He left his junior year. He didn't have to stay as long as a running back or a, or a defensive lineman might have to. Yeah, and I worry about players from that school specifically kind of being run into the ground and peaking in college mm-hmm. versus kind of still having something left to build upon once you get to the NFL. Yeah. Because we've seen it with the running backs time and time again. Mm-hmm. Also, Trent Richardson, I don't think he's really run into the ground. I just don't think he – I think he physically runs himself into the ground because he can't find a hole 
to save his life. <laughs> and he has the worst vision of any running back to be in the professional football, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there's other ones. I mean, Ingram's probably the most successful Alabama running back. Do, is it just me or did it, seem, does it seem like it took Ingram like six seasons to learn how to be a good running back? Because it was like he was in there, you realize he was there, and he's kind of lost in the depth chart and then kind of forgotten. And then you're like, is he on the team? And then the last two years he's been a Pro Bowl running back. It's weird. It happened for him in such a different fashion than it does for most running backs. He might have a 10-year yeah, career yeah. if you think about it. Yeah, most running backs start off real good, and they start running into longevity issues, and he seems to be doing the opposite. Yeah. Benjamin Button. Yep, yep. <laughs> Benjamin Button. Um, so moving on from there, we have Derwin James, San Diego, which I th- to me this is my like steal of the draft. Derwin James to the uh, San Diego – or not San Diego, Los Angeles Rams – uh, Jair Alexander, cornerback, going to Green Bay. Leighton, Leighton Vander Esch, going to the Dallas Cowboys. I read an interesting article about that, dude. I'll, I'll talk about that when we get it. And then Frank Ragnow, center, going to the Lions. Um, like I said, steal the draft, Erwin James. I feel like he is the most versatile. So I'm a big Miami fan. I always let people know that. The comparison for Derwin James was Sean Taylor. And if anybody knows me, Sean Taylor's a big deal in my book. He's my favorite football player of all time. If you're being compared to that, and then you played every position from defensive end to cornerback for your team, like this guy should have went in the top five, and the fact that the Chargers got him at 17 is ridiculous. It's ridiculous just because he got injured this last season. This guy's a stud, man. This He ah, changes that team with Joey Bosa at defensive end position. He does. It was a steal. And if I'm not mistaken, when I was watching the draft, Derwin James seemed to be the obvious pick for the Buccaneers, even so much that they like, actually showed a, a video of him and his reaction to Vita Vea being drafted instead of him because I feel like he was the natural pick for the Buccaneers there at 12. They, they needed a safety. Dude, this is what they – I'm sorry. Like, Florida teams never pander to their, fan, their fans. Never. You very rarely, other than Lamar Miller going to the Dolphins, that's a hometown kid getting drafted by a hometown team. And I'm not saying you necessarily should. I'm not saying Jacksonville should have drafted Tebow um, out of college because he's from Nice or anything like that. No, I. but I do think when he's a free agent, it might have been good to pick him up. Like Your fans might have appreciated it. You're not paying him that much to where it affects things, and then you, you've never played your backup anyway. What does it matter? Um, but, yeah. like, the Bucks have had chances to draft players that were clearly talented. Clearly talented. Jason Pierre-Paul, one of them. Um, even Shaquem Griffin, like giving him a shot, drafting him in the third, you know, fourth round would have been smart. Or, But yes, Derwin James fits a need for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, is absolutely available, and they go with Vita Vea, and you're just like, if those two, if in your playbook, if those two are the same like level of talent, don't you pick the guy that's from there and it would like put asses in the seats? Like, don't you care about that? Yeah, and in my opinion, it's a stronger need than defensive tackle. I mean, you do have Gerald McCoy, and you are you you did increase the defensive line on the off season, but you still haven't fixed anything with your safeties. Absolutely, so. it, absolutely, absolutely. And also, I don't I don't know your opinion on this, but mine personally, I feel like a defensive lineman. There are more of them that have talent than a 
what I feel like is a foundational player. So when you start drafting players in the first round, you're expecting 10 years out of these players. You're expecting a decade of, of production. And someone that has the ability to play cornerback now that knows how to transition to safety could transition to an outside rover linebacker and can move all around the field. That is not, that is not just a, I'm going to get 10 years out of this. Good. This guy's going to change my defense and allow me to do things I couldn't do. I don't understand it. I, I, I don't understand the Bucks missing that one. No, no. I mean, it, it, you're right. The defensive, especially defensive tackle in this draft was much deeper than it's been in years. And safety is never deep. You, you hardly ever see safeties. You see maybe one or two go in the first round, but then after that, it's like, you know, third or fourth because there's such a hit and miss position. Yep. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. Um, so from there, well, oh, the Vandernush. So there's just like this, like legend behind this dude. He's from Boise state. He's like practically a Viking. They have like, like him working out in the woods with like trees and shit like that. He's like legendary figure out in Boise state. Um, I think it's interesting. He's going to Dallas. Cause I don't imagine that's, there's a whole lot of that there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but a big yeah. pick for the Dallas Cowboys, probably one of the smarter draft picks they've done because, Every time Sean Lee gets hurt, that defense goes to trash, and they need someone that they can lean on to manage the middle of that defense because it seems like it falls apart. And also, kid from Notre Dame that had the gruesome knee injury still wasn't 100% next year. It's one of those like make-or-break years for him. Yeah, I think it was a good pick because they needed, they needed a linebacker, and this, this kid can also play – you know, in a three position, he can play down on the line because he's six foot four mm-hmm. and he has good speed. So it, he's kind of a utility position in the front seven for for the the Cowboys. So I think it was a, a good pick. Yep. And so moving from there, we have uh, Ohio State with or uh, Billy Price from Ohio State going to the Bengals. Rashard Evans, another Alabama guy going inside linebacker to the Titans. Isaiah Wynn. Offensive tackle, surprise there for me, going to New England. And DJ Moore, which is not good for you and Mike, going to the Carolina Panthers. And my DJ Moore is my thing. Steve Smith said, uh, Steve Smith very confidently said that the Panthers have missed me since they've lost me. This is the first receiver they drafted that can replace me. Yeah, yeah, I think. It was the it's the first receiver they've drafted in a long time that looks like a legitimate number one. Yeah, without he's and he's never had a good quarterback. He, he on Maryland he never had a good quarterback. So he's if you're no. producing production, it's kind of like like Calvin Johnson. People were looking at him like, oh, he's got good stats, but he's the only receiver and he's in a run formation. I'm like, yeah, but he's putting up stats and he the quarterback that came in there runs the triple option. Like you've got to be unworldly to run in triple coverage and be able to get the ball. Like and that's the kind of player DJ Moore is. Not good for you guys. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no. And so also, uh, the Titans pick Rashawn Evans, which is an interesting pick for me. He is a talented, like very, very good um, linebacker from Alabama. Really a side to side sideline player. Going to be great in coverage. Um, I think he's going to be versatile for them. The Tennessee Titans for me are the team I'm really worried about. I something about the Texans as a Colts fan. I just kind of figure they're going to screw it up. Deshaun Watson might change that. I mean, he he might be able to do that for them. But what's happening in Tennessee is 
a little nerve wracking for me. I feel like they're going to be really good. Yeah, I think I think the Tennessee is going to be good. Um, I still think that uh, the te- the Texans, in my opinion, will probably win the South uh, just because Deshaun Watson's gonna, if if he's not getting better, he's at least as good as he was last year. And if the defense stays, if the defense, if JJ Watt can be healthy, mm-hmm. the defense can sustain being good, and then I think that they have the best chance. Yeah. So I mean, but the Tennessee Titans are going to be. It's going. I think it's between the Titans and the Texans, in my opinion. For yeah, South. and I, I and I the Jaguars the should be. Jaguars. And what's crazy is none of none of the other three teams in the divisions are as talented as the Jaguars. The Jaguars are the most talented team in that division, but their quarterback is so atrocious. You think the other teams are being able to catch him that quick? It's like a human race and a velociraptor. Like you're genetically killing yourself right now, but. <laughs> So, (laughs) also, what I was going to say, New England Patriots, I thought they were going to take Lamar Jackson. I really did. I think because of people talking, and I really thought they were going to go Lamar Jackson with this pick. They went with a not a bad pick because they lost their starting offensive tackle. He went to uh, the New York Giants for an ungodly amount of money. But they get one here with a Georgia player who is big and is mean. And I don't know if you've watched Georgia this year, but the one thing they weren't suffering from was blocking because their quarterback and their running backs had a field day. Yeah, no. No, this definitely makes the Patriots better. I don't like anything that makes the Patriots better. And I didn't I didn't think they'd go <clears throat> Lamar Jackson only because, I mean, if you talk about two completely opposite quarterbacks – Tom Brady and Lamar Jackson are as far on the other ends of the spectrum as possible but, as far as the kind of offense that Bill Belichick has run. Absolutely. I that Lamar I, Jackson fits in there. I agree. I agree. I think, but uh, but the thing is, in the NFL, the way it's being played right now, kind of what um, uh, the Texans showed us last year was one of these guys, like one of those guys that can, can keep plays alive, Aaron Rodgers, um, Deshaun Watson, uh, Russell Wilson, if you can keep plays alive, even dude, uh, Jameis Winston, like uh, when he was in college, keeping plays alive, moving around the pocket, lively feet, enough enough athleticism to make people nervous and to make a play. It's almost hard. It's almost impossible to defend. If you get someone who can be accurate, who can hit the occasional play action deep ball and then keep a play alive, they're almost unstoppable. Colin Kaepernick, I, he's not in the NFL anymore, but I don't. I don't know if you guys remember, but the Green Bay Packers couldn't beat him. Couldn't beat him because he could move around in the pocket. He'd run around there and he'd break off a 60-yard run. Couldn't stop him. I thought Lamar. Ja- I think yeah. Lamar Jackson. To me, Lamar Jackson. The, he was the the best player in college football, and Deshaun Watson was in, was playing college football at that time. I don't know how that adds up to me not thinking that guy's the best. To me, he's better than Baker Mayfield. He's got. A uh, little bit of bigger size. I've seen him do certain things I like more than I like on Baker Mayfield. But Baker Mayfield would also probably be my number three. But anyway, continuing with the list, uh, Hayden Hurst at South Carolina. Calvin Ridley to your Atlanta Falcons. Rashad Penny to the Seattle Seahawks, which is probably one of the dumber picks of the draft. And then Terrell Edmonds, Virginia Tech. Uh, safety going to the Pittsburgh Steelers. How do you feel about Calvin Ridley? I know we discussed it before, but I'd love to hear your take on it. I was surprised, to say the least. Um, not a bad I pick, though. I'd, no, it's not a terrible pick. Um, 
it, we had lost a third wide receiver. We don't have a clear number three currently. You, you lost uh, Gabriel, correct, right? Yeah, yeah, we lost Gabriel. Hardy's never really panned out uh, to be a number three consistent. Um, so picking up Calvin Ridley, to me, isn't a bad pick. I, he's the best ride. Well, I think he's, it's between him and DJ Moore as the best wide receiver. It depends on what you're looking for, mostly in a wide receiver. Calvin Ridley is a great route runner. And Excellent. for the slot guy, that's important. Excellent route runner. Like no, th- like that. I don't think that can be stated enough. How how good he runs routes, and he's fast. He's got speed. He's got th- four three sub four four speed. Yeah, I think he he'll if he doesn't play slot because Sanu might play slot slot instead. Mm-hmm. Um, if he plays opposite Julio Jones, I mean that's a problem. Like, Who are you going to put your number one guy on? I, y'all have y'all, y'all have three number one receivers, in my opinion. I think that Sanu, if he if put it like this, if Marvin Lewis or Marlon or sorry, if Golden Tate didn't go to the Detroit Lions and Sanu did, he'd be the number one receiver. He'd be putting up stats. If Sanu went to um, the Colts instead of T.Y. Hilton, he would be putting up. So I think Sanu is w- way underrated. I think that Julio is an obvious number one. And then I think that this player is a fundamental type of player for your offense. He's someone that's going to work. He's going to push. And I I think it's dangerous on y'all's offense. I think this is exactly the kind of pick you guys needed. Yeah, yeah. And someone who's already uh, accustomed to playing in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, or at least playing here in Atlanta. Yeah, absolutely. Alabama played. Absolutely. And so the other pick that I wanted to talk about from, from that segment – um, was Rashad Penny, uh, running back with some injury problems, going to the Seattle Seahawks, who are still searching for someone to replace Marshawn Lynch. I don't think this is the guy. It's also really freaking weird to me that they picked this guy and Nick Chubb sitting there. Like, as a talent standpoint for me, if both of them have injury concerns, I'm definitely thinking Nick Chubb is better than this guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or Sony Michelle. It was really out of left field. Uh, it's... Rashad Penny just isn't. I, I didn't. I didn't even have him on my radar for running backs in the first two rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were plenty of other running backs that showed more than he did. I mean, yeah. And if you talk about production, Nick Chubb. Yeah, and you talked about it earlier. The wear and tear on Alabama running backs. This is a running back that has rushed for twenty two hundred y- rushing yards. Twenty two hundred in two thousand seventeen alone. This is a quarter. This is a running back with years on his legs, and I know that they found something with DJ Procise there. If he can stay healthy, I know they have a, a barrage of backs. But I think wasting a first round pick again—a first round pick—is so valuable. It is so valuable. I just don't. I don't see using it there. It's kind of surprising to me that they did. Um, also, I wanted to say one thing. I think that. I know we discussed the the contract disputes and stuff like that beforehand. I do think that Julio Jones is going to stay with you guys, but I don't think there's it. Y'all, your your receiver position is taken care of till 2030 in my mind. It's oh, just yeah, you, yeah. You, yeah, you're just they'll, loaded. They'll re-sign Julio Jones for whatever he wants, and then you know when Calvin Ridley's time comes up, I'm sure they'll re-sign him as long mm-hmm. as he works out the way that he's projected to. And, yeah, we'll have one and two secured for a while. All right. And now to the last four picks. Um, also, Terrell Emmons, the guy, the safety that went to Virginia Tech, is 
was his brother also got drafted by the Bills earlier at outside linebacker. First brothers that have ever been drafted in the first round. Pretty cool. Um, but the last four picks, Taven Bryan, defensive tackle, Florida. Mike Hughes, cornerback, UCF, to the Vikings. Sony Michelle, 31 pick of the first round. Running back from Georgia going to the Patriots. And Lamar Jackson in a trade, Baltimore trading back in, drafts Lamar Jackson. Um, I don't know. So I know we talked about the Texans and the Titans. The Jaguars continue to be great evaluators of talent at every position other than quarterback because Taven Bryan is a great defensive lineman from Florida. They also pick up Ronnie Harrison later in the draft, safety from Alabama. It really sucks playing against the Jacksonville Jaguars, but the great thing is that they are colorblind and a quarterback is red or green, and they have no clue which one it is. Yeah, yeah, it was a good pick for for Jacksonville. Um, you know, the thing is, with when you have great defensive runs like they had, there, it's not guaranteed to happen a second year in a row. You know, mm-hmm. like the opportunities may not present themselves in the same way to have your defense constantly score touchdowns for you. So that's why I'm, you know, shaky on on Jacksonville. Okay. Yeah, and so the other pick, which we were talking about, um, Sony Michelle, uh, big pickup for the Patriots. To me, they lost Deion Lewis. This is Deion Lewis with 20 pounds and a lot more strength in to actually run the ball. Um, I think this this is the first first round running back that they've taken since Lawrence Maroney, and I think Sonny Michelle has a next gear. He was lightning on the football field whenever he was playing, and I think that's a great pick for them. Yeah, yeah, I think. Picking up uh, Wynn and Michelle, you know, an offensive lineman and a running back, I think that they're preparing for life after Brady, personally. Mm-hmm. I mean, you pick up an offensive line, you pick up a good running back, now you can lean more yeah, on building the running team. game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that they are. I think Bill is recognizing the situation and trying to build a good team. He's doing the opposite of what Cleveland does with LeBron. As the superstar ages, you, he, they're not giving in to everything he wants. They're doing what they think they need to do for a good team. Uh, and the final pick of the first round as we wrap this up, Lamar Jackson, my personal favorite at quarterback. I think it's important, and I think the Baltimore Ravens obviously did to get him in the first round. Gives you the fifth-year option at the end of the contract. But I think Flacco should not feel confident in his position as the starting quarterback this year, even this year. I think that they're going to have a package, 10 or 15 plays for Lamar Jackson. He's going to come in and sports every game, just kind of play around, play around. And then there's going to be one game where he's just like in for those 15 plays and the coaches look and go, yeah, let's just leave him in. Let's just leave him in for a little bit. Let's see how this goes. Let's see how it goes. And then he wins a game and it's like, oh, God, Flacco sucks. So let's just go ahead and pull him. <laughs> I, think, I think this is a scary pickup for Joe Flacco. He should be worried. He should definitely be worried. I think this is the steal of the draft, personally. They traded up back up into the first round. For this value. They pick him up. For this value. They're not paying him a million dollars a year. This is a great value. No. No. And I don't. And I think, like you, if he doesn't start this year, he'll be next year's starter because Joe Flacco's entire career is hinged off of one Super Bowl run. Absolutely. In which the defense was fantastic. And, so, hey. And then. Oh, I'm sorry. And that's let's not negate it. Listen, that's a Super Bowl run. He won a Super Bowl championship. We are not. We here on the Nightcap podcast, I think the Pour Up podcast would support this. We don't hate him for going and getting his money. We do not discourage that. But he has not lived up to it. 
No, not at all. He's not lived up to the contract he gained after that. Yes. He's really kind of fizzled out. So he should not feel comfortable at all, like you said. He should be seriously worried that Lamar Jackson doesn't take his job by the end of preseason. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. I agree. I'm ex- extremely excited. I think some things shook out. I really think that we're going to look back next year at the Cleveland picks, the top four. They're the one and the four. And look at them and be like, I have no clue what Cleveland was thinking. Because I tell you this right now. You are the Patriots GM. You still have Jimmy Garoppolo. I come to you as the Cleveland Browns. And I offer you Baker Mayfield and... Scrolling. Denzel Ward. I offer you those two players. Are you giving me Jimmy Garoppolo? Knowing what you know now. Jake. Uh, probably not. No. no if I walk, not. But if I come to you before the draft and say, I'll give you the first and the fourth pick in the first round of the draft this year, give me Jimmy Garoppolo. I, I think that's a bit rich for Jimmy Garoppolo, but I, if I was a Patriots GM, I'd be like, yes. But right, yeah. right. So what I'm saying is if you think that that's rich for Jimmy Garoppolo, how poor are those picks that you aren't making that afterwards? Because you – one proven commodity in Jimmy Garoppolo, obviously. I'm not going to negate that. But I just think you're uh, – they they made, they had the opportunity of a lifetime, which is two top five picks. The, avail- the ability to trade down, pick up more, trade up, like move around and just stash up cash. And if I'm Tyrod Taylor, I know they're going to try to run me out of town. I don't think it's going to happen because Tyrod Taylor has been tried by weak quarterbacks before. And I'm not saying Baker Mayfield is weak. I think he could end up being a superstar. I don't think right now he's ready to start. No. And and I think that if, if it were me, if I were the Browns GM, and I had Tyrod Taylor already, a proven commodity, he can, he can win games in the NFL. That's why I would have probably gone Saquon Barkley, Chubb. Yep. One and four, because I know what I have in Tyrod Taylor, and he's a starter. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be an exciting year, man. Um, I want to say Shaquem Griffin, also from UCF, went in the fourth round to the Seattle Seahawks. Big ups. Um, also, weird, super weird moment was uh, Shazier coming out to announce the pick for the Steelers. I know that they meant that in a kind of like a in a, in a hat, like uplifting, like, look at this. It. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't feel like that, man. It felt like, holy crap, this is the sport that we're supporting, and it basically looked like human cockfighting for a minute. You're just like, God. Like, and it was it was just sad, man, to see it, because he was so good, so talented. But uh, what did you think of that? Yeah, I think that it was, it was a little – I know what it was meant to be, like you said. Um, it was meant to be uplifting. And don't get me wrong – the fact that he's walking at all anymore at this point is fantastic. I mean, that's he is way, way above where I thought he would ever be again. Yeah, yeah. And, but, yeah, it just came off like, okay, I, I know what you're doing, but it's, mm-hmm. this looks bad. You know, it's kind of like, what? you know, in recent in recent years, they've started, whenever a player gets injured, I don't know if you've noticed, but when I was growing up and a player got injured, uh, they kept the cameras on, but now they'll cut to commercial yep. because they don't want to show uh, the injuries that happen anymore. They don't want to show the brutality of the sport. Agreed. Agreed. I see that. And then also the one thing that I've noticed is like people know stuff now. 
Like the internet has allowed people to be intelligent on a level that I don't think uh, big conglomerates and the NFL and media have really become aware of. And so like they can't just like when, when they did this, like in 1995, if they strut out this dude who's just getting paralyzed, wheel him out, blah, blah, blah. We like, like, and, they, and it would be uplifting. Now we know that like the NFL hid concussions from people. We know that the NFL has tried to glorify and, you know, make money off of big hits and devastating blows and then running from safety measures that would help the players. Also, there are a there's a lot to be said about the just the stagnation of the game and why they didn't transition to maybe safer forms beforehand. And I think that that you could have gotten away with that before people knew those things. But now that they know you got to change your tactic, like you can't just try to use this as a an inspirational thing. Like, it also needs to be like, and this is why we need safety in football. Like, you know, I know you want to complain about it. I know you want the hard-playing football that you enjoy. And, yeah, like, put them in the gladiator. Like, thumbs up, thumbs down, or you die. I know that that seems exciting. But then those people go home and they have families. And I don't think you can market the same way that you could before. Yeah, yeah, just from, you know, like a personal note, you know, I'm in a different place in my life than I was when I first started watching football and, you know, seeing Ryan Chazier struggle to walk across the stage, you know, then yeah. I look at my son, I'm like, I don't know that I want him to play football. Absolutely, you know, man. Absolutely. That's reality. Yeah, I agree. I, the most telling, and, I, and we'll get out on this, was one time I was listening to uh, first, or, I don't know if it was first take, but Marcus Wiley was on there and they asked him, would you let your son play football? And he said, no, my son will never play football. That is poor people sports. You get in the door with it. You don't stay in the room. And I was like, all right, it's an inch. That's an interesting thing, man. All right, man, Jake, thank you for coming on the podcast. Always good having you a very interesting draft. We'll have you on again. Uh, here soon before we go into the season. Maybe we'll have a little roundtable with me, you, and Mike, and we talk about who's going to do better in the uh, NFC South. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Jam. All right, buddy. See you. Hello, and here's the wrap-up, the final thing that you need to know. I decided to save this one till the end because it's going to be a little bit lengthy, I think. It might not be. It could be like two minutes, and then I'm over with it. But I wanted to talk about, because I've been reading a lot of articles, uh, seeing a lot of articles put out, a lot of videos, a lot of people discussing this, but the concept is internet addiction, specifically social media internet addiction, and the causes and adverse effects of it, uh, ways that we can combat it, and ways that we can recognize it and decide what we want to do with it. Uh, one of the most interesting things that really like spurned me, spurred me on to start looking at internet addiction was that tech leaders like Steve Jobs and people that run Facebook and, and basically the who's who's of tech in San Francisco actually did not let their kids or didn't let their kids for Steve Jobs, RIP, don't let their kids interact with iPads or, or uh, smartphones. Uh, they actually send, themselves to, send, send their kids to a school that doesn't introduce kids to screens until they're around 13 to 14 years old in their early teens. And in fact, when they are introduced with screens, it is not for an actual passive, it's not for passive content. They actually are teaching them how to code. They teach them how to develop. It's kind of a thing that I was interested in because what we usually use social media and iPads and new technology is, is a distraction. But what the people that are actually building these things are teaching their kids to use it as as tools. 
not as something to surround surround around your life, but to be as something as kind of like springboard for it. Another thing that also I, I've learned is that almost everyone underestimates the time that you imagine that you spend on your phone. If you think that you spend around two hours or three hours on your phone, chances are you spend around four to six. Young people and uh, growing up millennials or the screen generation actually spends around six to eight hours on the phone, which is really Mike, hard to, to imagine when most people are only awake for about 12 to 14 hours in a given day. And 75 and 75% of people actually can reach their phone without moving their feet. That is called propinquity, which, which is the things that are closest to us shape our world, which is interesting because considering the fear we have with Facebook and social media and the impact of people being able to harvest our data and impact us and shape how we view it, it's interesting that it is mainly surrounded by our phone, our iPad, our laptop, what we can view, what we stare at, what we spend most of our time on. And if we can interact with these things without even moving our feet, that's more impactful on our life than food, friends, colleagues, our job. It's right there the moment you wake up. Some people use it as their alarm clock. Some people use it as the, for meditation like I do. Some people use it before they even get out of bed and before they get into it. Next things. Phones are created with... I have created what some people call an uncomfortableness with being bored. That creates a problem because we have grown to be a generation or a, a group of people that are constantly needing to be stimulated. Boredom is actually awkward for us. If you ever look at someone when they get in an elevator, watch what they have to do with their hands. They immediately pull out a phone or they whisper to their friend beside them. They cannot stand to be in that place without something to do. They, can't be they need to be distracted. What's interesting about that is boredom is actually... Um, what most psychologists say is boredom is actually our most creative period of the day. The time when you're bored or the time where you don't have anything to do or you can clear your mind and do nothing is actually when you decide to do something artistic, to do something brilliant, to do something creative. If we're robbing ourselves of those points of boredom, if we're robbing them ourselves of those, those points where we have nothing to do, then we find ourselves constantly doing things that are maybe mediocre compared to what we could do if we allowed ourselves to do nothing. Also, we're, we're with internet addiction and with things that, like that and social media, we're also beginning to develop a lack of stressless time. When you're, on when you're on the internet, when you're working, when you're going through your everyday life, you're constantly being bombarded with deadlines, things to do, things to react to, things to respond to, things to read, things that impact your mental status. That has not always been the case for humanity. In fact, for most of what has shaped the human brain and, our, and we, what we have developed into was by nomadic creatures that had to hunt and gather and build things. They were active for four hours of their day. They were out in sunlight. They had whole food diets. They had a lot of omega-3 naturally through their diet. They were constantly expressing themselves and developing things with face-to-face -face contact. That allows you to take breaks from things that are stressful. It allows you um, a time period where you feel no stress. In the modern day society, in the first world, we don't really have times that we do that. If you're going from the family unit to your job, from your job to social media, from your social media to sleep, that is really the only time that you have that's a break. And if we don't have that time as a break, we're actually trapping ourselves in stress. 
and our body's not geared to do that. Chemically and emotionally, our body is not geared to be stressed all the time, and it actually causes us to break down. Now, what you're thinking is, well, if I'm so much on my phone, if I'm always on social media, what impact does that have, and why is it so hard to stop? Well, there are th- the three biggest social media things that we have going on right now are the social media apps, our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. People that had, it was statistically proven that people spent, that spent more time on Facebook, that spent time posting, liking, watching videos, they actually began to develop depression. They began to look at other people's lives, they began to look at their friends, they began to feel disconnected, they began to feel as if they weren't part of the world ironic because when we first got to Facebook, it was a way to connect yourself with the world with people you didn't see. People that spent a lot of their time on Instagram began to develop jealousy. They began to have a warped sense of what status was, what success was, what popularity was, and what happiness was. People began to look at people going to Coachella, traveling the world, going here, going there, and they assumed that because they were doing that and they looked happy, that was happiness. They began to put an emphasis on their other their friends' lives. And no longer did having driving a Honda Accord make you happy. Now you had to have a Mercedes. Once you had a Mercedes, then you had to have a Bentley. Once you had a Bentley, you needed to get a plane. It began to put an emphasis on things. It, I mean, you can look, just look at how it's affected the way we view bodies. And an emphasis on dynamics of a bigger butt, bigger boobs, a more better teeth, more attractive people, a clear skin. When we actually look at humanity, none of us have those things. Those are unrealistic expectations. In fact, the CEO of Instagram said, when you come on my app, I want you to think one thing. I want you to drool. And the reason is because I want you to want something you don't have. And if you're constantly seeking, you're never satisfied. Twitter. Twitter is very similar to Facebook and what most people responded to, but what it developed was a warped reality. You can actually, because of the algorithm, like and follow and develop where you put yourself in an echo chamber, where you're only hearing voices that agree with you. You can begin to feel like the whole world is on your side. You're absolutely right. And you can become a self-dominating or allow your ideology to become dominant to the point where you're not even willing to listen to other people's ideas. good example of this is what's happening to Kanye right now. Kanye is speaking out, not necessarily in support of Trump, but basically saying he doesn't disagree with everything that he's doing, which hasn't stated, he hasn't stated that he voted for Trump or anything like that. He's just stating, you know, what he believes. And instead of people being like, okay, you believe that? I don't believe it. I can move on. People are distraught by it. How can someone whose music I buy just be so far different than mine? When in fact, most of the people that we listen to don't believe everything that we believe anyway. I'm a person of faith and I can guarantee most of the musicians I listen to either aren't or don't believe in the same thing I do. It doesn't mean I can't like their music. It doesn't mean I can't agree on my favorite, their favorite restaurant or their favorite kind of pizza. We might actually have a lot to talk about because I love pizza. But if we're constantly bombarding ourselves in these social medias and not interacting with people as a whole, we lose certain things in who we are as people. So why is it hard to stop? Things that aid you... Things that have historically aided us in breaking away from things are what are called stopping cues. When you read a newspaper, you got to the end of the article, you moved on. When you read a book, you got to the end of the chapter, you moved on. When you got to the end of a video game, you moved on. 
And in fact, if you remember when Twitter first came out and Facebook came out, you would have to press buttons to continue. So there was a stopping cue. Now that it's no longer the fact, you can actually continue to scroll and scroll and scroll. It's endless. And without stopping cues, our brain doesn't tell us to stop. We don't actually think of when we should get off of it. We just continue to kind of dive down the rabbit hole. Also, variable rewards burst fixed rewards. So think of this as gambling versus your paycheck. So when you, ha- when you work at a job, you work eight hours, you get paid a certain amount. Or if you're on a salary, you know you have to fit in this time period that you need to be at work and you're paid wages. A variable reward is basically, it's random. As long as you play the game, you'll, you have a chance of getting a reward or not getting a reward. Gambling. And it turns out that most people find more happiness and more euphoria from variable reward systems. The like button. I can post something. I have no clue whether people are going to support it or whether people are going to agree with it, whether people are going to be angry at me for it. But if I post something on Instagram and someone likes it, it makes me happy. It actually makes me happier than the expected reward I would have by maybe telling someone I know agrees with me the idea in person. But if you post something on Instagram, you find so much happiness at it that you want to continue posting. You want to continue posting that those people will like, what what those people will like. And you begin to shape your reality towards what you find people liking more. And you begin to lose necessarily the center and what it is that you are as a person because you become addicted to the like button. Also, goals. You find yourself distorting yourself to try and get more and more likes, like I said before. One of the interesting ways they found this was in fitness apps. People became so obsessed with fitness apps and began to hit 10,000 steps, 11,000 steps, 14,000 steps, 15,000 steps. They would push themselves past what their physical boundaries allowed them to do. And actually, you saw a rise in in injuries on the people that used fitness apps because they became addicted to them. So... With the, with, with the lack of stopping cues, with, with variable response systems, with goals and people changing who they are, what can we do about it? It's an interesting thing because it's something that everyone has to decide on their own. Going cold turkey has been proven not to be realistic for most people because the phone is literally an appendage now. They asked, uh, a, so a psychology group asked a group, a cl- group of class members that were seniors in high school whether they would rather lose their, their hand or their cell phone. And it said they took the average response time was over three minutes because for those kids, it was really hard to decide what they would rather do. And what they asked, what, what they, one of the questions they asked was, was the hand that they were losing the one that they used their phone on the most? And because the phone for some people is no longer something that you can do without. So most of the time when you notice or you're told what time, you, how much time you spend on the phone, you try to do the opposite. And in fact, you actually begin to use your phone more. So what you have to do is kind of, there are a few things that you can do to wean yourself off of internet addiction. One of them is to introduce stopping cues in your life. For some people, they set a time like when I'm eating or I'm spending time with other people, I'm not on my phone. Some people set specific times from five to seven, I'm not on my phone. When I'm at the dinner table with my family, I'm not at my phone. When I'm out on a date, I'm not on my phone. Another thing that people do is remove the proximity of the phone. Let the phone charge in the other room while you're going to bed. Maybe leave it in the car while you go to bed. Use an actual alarm as an alarm clock so you stop relying on your smartphone. One of the interesting ones that I saw was that you remove the phone from your from your bed when you're waking up and when you 
and when you go to sleep because it actually hurts the amount of sleep that you're able to get because of the blue light that's in the foam. So a lot of people talk about not touching it for the first 30 minutes of the day and not touching it for the last 30 minutes of the day. The other thing we can do is set goals. I actually use an app that is based around um, a tree. You set a time limit that is on it from 30 all the way to 120 minutes that you can be off of your phone. And while you're off of your phone, you grow a tree. And uh, if you ever get out of the app or you leave it or you go to something else, you have like two seconds to get back into the app or your tree dies. And what you do is you build a forest and you add up points. And in adding up those points, you develop this forest and garden. You can buy fountains. You can do all things with these points. And the higher and higher you get, you can actually take those points and donate them to the app. And that app uses those points to actually go and plant a tree in a third world country. And it tries to give back to the environment. There are tons of apps that you can look at and, and um, tons of apps that you can look at that will help you kind of wean off of internet addiction. But the biggest thing that I can tell you is that more and more and more we're finding out that constantly being disconnected from the world and being relied on internet to connect us is actually having pretty drastic effects on who we are as people. I mean, if we were you know, able to redo it, I'm pretty sure that we would want to do focus groups, say 30%, like 50% of the room would have a phone, 50% of wouldn't, and we'll allow them to experiment on what happens to them after a couple of years. Do they have less social interpersonal skills? Do they have more interpersonal skills? Are they able to relate with the world better? Are they able to relate to the world worse? It's not really the world that we're in. But what we can see now is the beginning signs of what we have to look forward to if we don't check ourselves and disconnect. So that's internet addiction. That's something that I've learned through the week. Let me know if you guys agree. Let me know if you guys disagree. Let me know if you guys have also gone through this because I know that when I looked at this and I began to read, I saw that I definitely deal with this. I looked at especially the thing on Instagram and jealousy and and Facebook and depression, and I've seen how I've let certain things that should not affect me, and they're not even real because you don't know those people and don't know what they're going through, but it has affected my everyday life and how I've lived it. So... How can you, like, give me some tips. Let me know how if you guys agree, if you don't agree, things that you have done to maybe wean yourself off of it, or maybe some things that you don't agree with whatsoever, and you think that I'm just overreacting, and maybe the whole world is. So, let me know. And as always, I thank you guys for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Nightcap.